0: Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go.
1: Here we go, here we go, here we go. What's up, guys? Two tongues coming at you again. Chris today for another solo episode. We're going to do a little exploration of, uh, well, kind of an in- interesting individual a guy by the name of Rudolf Steiner. It's actually a little bit out of my wheelhouse, if I'm being honest, but it came up. I may have mentioned it to you before, it came up in a conversation I was having with somebody on Twitter and then, um, on uh discord. Well, I mean, basically I was doing a lot of talking about Carl Jung and, um, his uh, practice of active imagination, and every time I do one of those uh, Gandalf the Red episodes, I describe what Carl Jung meant by uh, active imagination, but not to bore you guys with it, just another quick run rundown. It's just an exercise. It was experimental, something Carl Jung started practicing with on his own. He needed to find a way of trying to hone his psyche. He wanted to find a way of understanding his mind better. And part of it had to do with meditation, you know. He wanted to experience everything he could from his psyche and from the unconscious. Any connection he could make to that because Carl Jung believed that kind of the life of the cosmos had something deeply to do with, with the unconscious, whatever that is. It's not even, it's certainly not an easy thing to define. But I think we would agree um, loosely that we live as human beings, partly consciously and partly unconsciously, and whether we can say what the unconscious is, I think, is a stretch. Uh, but it's that's what Jung was trying to figure out. And so he would he would quiet his mind. He would meditate. He would allow fantasies to pop into his mind, kind of like you might if he were daydreaming, but without trying. It's not like he was trying to make a certain image appear. He would just clear his mind, or he would concentrate on a particular thought, and things would come to him. And according to Carl Jung, those unconscious images that came to him were important. They had meaning in the same way that myths or dreams might have meaning, if you could only interpret it. And so, you know, Freud wrote a book about dream interpretation, and, you know, at the time, it's something that was taken seriously seriously. But prior to Jung, it's something, prior to Jung and Freud, it was something that we would relegate to, um, well, I mean, like religious stories, you know? Like Moses is interpreting the Pharaoh's dreams, and it's just something that we relegate to prehistory as some, you know, thing that we did when we didn't know enough. And Carl Jung brought that 180 degrees around and said, not so fucking fast, you guys. There may be something here. And the criticism that I was getting about this approach, this active imagination, which, which by the way, I've tried to do many times. I'm not, by no means am I an expert, but I tried to do it, and I did succeed in having kind of fantasy, sort of dreamlike images come to my mind. And to me, they were meaningful. Like I found a way of interpreting them that was meaningful. So, yeah, I don't know if I would endorse it like wholeheartedly, but I've tried it. It's something that, um, it's something that does seem to work. And if I continue to practice and try it, maybe, maybe I can go deeper. But while I was having these conversations with folks online, they, they were like, look, there are people who have done a better job of outlining how you can tap into your unconscious, how you can come to know yourself better, um, in the, in the way that Jung was trying to do. And one of them was a guy named Rudolf Steiner. And I'm—I've been pretty surprised by the amount of overlap between Steiner and Jung. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that today. But before I do, I want—I want to also tell you that Steiner is somebody that I ordinarily would not have given any attention to, because if you look up Rudolf Steiner, what you're going to see about him is that he's associated with the occult um, and esoteric philosophy so if you've heard any of those words before uh or or um you know esoteric ideas you know i don't know what comes to mind but things like black magic and black masses and you know pagan you know religious rituals and and uh you know ma- you know magical spells and incantations things like um séances and uh you know automatic writing and talking to the dead and things like that all that sort of stuff I would just write off as as hokum. You know, it's not something I would have given any attention to. But I was convinced to give Rudolf Steiner a read, and I did. And, well, I might have misjudged Rudolf Steiner. It's possible that I've misjudged occultism, you know, much more broadly. I'm not saying that there's not a bunch of hokum involved, uh, because I think there's probably true. But not all of it. You know, I can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I didn't know that until I read Rudolf Steiner. So a little bit about Rudolf Steiner. Born in 1861. uh, Died in 1925. Um, The book that I read of his is, um, I think it's from 1914. So First World War. One interesting thing about Steiner and Jung, because I said before that there's a lot of overlap... Um, I don't think they knew each other. Um, If they did know each other, I don't think they would have been likely to share ideas because they weren't in the same circles at all. But Carl Jung was born in 1875, a little bit after Steiner, and he lived a lot longer than Steiner. He died in 1961, but they had a great deal of overlap um, historically. They kind of grew up in the same period. There was like a tradition of spiritualism that was going on at the time, um, kind of this Victorian era, maybe at least that's the word that comes to my mind. Uh, you know, like the the age of, you know, rich Victorian aristocrats you know, getting around a table and, and a crystal ball and having a seance. And, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, uh, pop culture horror movies we could point to as examples of that. But that was a real movement that was going through Europe at the time. And and there was some interest in, I guess, you know, people were getting less religious. That was the beginning of secularization. And so people were sort of wanting Um, a more direct connection to spirituality, and so that was something that got very popular. I mentioned it before when I mentioned um, Charles Darwin. This goes back a while, so you guys may not remember, but I mentioned Charles Darwin. Um, He published The Origin of Species with um, another scientist named Alfred Wallace, and Alfred Wallace is very interesting, in my opinion, way more interesting than than, um, Darwin, but we don't know about him, and the reason we don't know about him is because he was a spiritualist. He was one of those people that bought into that, and the scientific community just didn't take it seriously, and they wrote him off as a kook. And I think Rudolf Steiner maybe had the same problem. Uh, But again, um, he was somebody, he was from Austria. Uh, He died, by the way, in uh, Switzerland, which is where Jung was from, so some other commonalities, but neither here nor there. Um, Steiner was a philosopher, and he was... became famous as a philosopher, so he wrote a book, uh, what was it called, it was called um, The Philosophy of Freedom, and it was pretty well uh, regarded, so he got a little bit of popularity after he published that book, but he just went off the deep end, at least that's the perspective that other people had, he became an occultist, he focused a lot more on that, he, he said that he was a, he was clairvoyant so that's another one of those words that I would have been like, hippy-dippy nonsense, no thank you, moving on. And I maybe I still do feel that way, uh, but I'm I'm not decided about it right now. But Steiner founded a spiritual movement um, called Anthrosophy. Anthrosophy. And it borrowed ideas from um, a phil- philosophical system called idealism, which is something that I ascribe to, you know, I, if you ask me kind of what school I ascribe to, I might, I might say idealism or panpsychism, um, one or the other. Those are the ones I think most closely uh, aligned with my ideas. Um, idealism just says something like, everything is mind. So matter is either an illusion or it's, or it's, a, um, or it's a, a property of mind, and uh, most scientific people today believe exactly the opposite, that there's only matter and that, and that um, consciousness is something that emerges from matter. And so idealism takes the opposite approach and says that either matter doesn't exist at all, and it's sort of a hallucination, all that exists is mind, or um, matter exists as a, a property of mind, and and uh, so it kind of flips everything on its head. It, but there's also influences from theosophy, and uh, this was another kind of um, spiritualism-related movement. Uh, if you guys know the lady, uh, her name was Madame Blavatsky, so... I haven't done a deep study on Madame Blavatsky, but usually Blavatsky's name comes up with names like Aleister Crowley uh, and, you know, all kinds of things like um, seances and, and automatic writing and all that kind of stuff comes to mind. So he was wrapped up in a movement like this, and he did his own thing. So he's going to be different from the idealist schools of philosophy. He's going to be different from theosophy and Madame Blavatsky, but there's going to be some commonalities, But the commonalities that struck struck me were really the commonalities to the ideas of Carl Jung. You know, they were contemporaries of one another. No reason for me to think that they knew each other, but there's a really tremendous amount of overlap in their ideas or conclusions, and they start from very different places. You know, Steiner's coming from this um, spiritual, religious, mystical sort of perspective. In fact, He's, he's a mystic as far as I'm concerned. And I think that's why I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt because I read him and realized this guy is a legitimate mystic. I consider myself to be one. Um, so when you've had a mystical experience and you hear someone talk or read somebody who, who wrote something who themselves had a mystic experience, all you can do is nod your head. You're like, yes, yes, this guy gets it. This guy has seen it. And so that's where I am with Steiner. I can't write him off as a kook as much as I might like to because he genuinely had a mystic experience and the kind of stuff he says falls right along the lines of things I say and right along the lines of things Carl Jung said and the fact that they didn't borrow ideas from each other and you can tell because they use different language it's it's fascinating to me. Alright, so without further ado that brings me to the first section. We're going to call it the the super-physical world, the super-physical world. By that, we just mean a world that exists somehow apart or beyond the material-physical world. There's something going on, something we might, we might call spiritual in a religious um, c- context. So it begins like this. Steiner says, The way to higher knowledge is open to anyone who will acquire for himself the faculties by which he may prove the spiritual truths herein claimed. He says, I do not claim to be chosen. I have merely developed within myself some of man's additional senses through which it is possible to glimpse into superphysical regions. These senses are dormant within you and every other person until they are developed. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. So what Steiner's saying here is, First of all, a couple of interesting things. He's saying that there are senses, there are ways of perceiving or maybe things to be perceived that we can perceive, but only if we exercise the the muscles, let's say, that are needed to really bring that into focus, that there are more senses than just the five that we are familiar with. And, um, you know, that may strike you as weird, but it may not. If, you, if you're somebody who thinks that intuition and instincts and things are, are, are something that falls outside of the realm of, uh, of the senses in general, and I do, you know, I'm one of those people. Then that's uh, that's something that uh, you might be, you know, might be open to. Um. He also says, um. Well, he 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 makes reference to a superphysical region, so he he means to say that there's some reality, some world, some something. Outside of the physical, that can be known, and that it's something that everybody has the ability to, um, you know, to um, hone those those faculties and to be able to have this experience. And everybody who has a mystic experience that I know of, uh, Walter Stacey was a Princeton professor, William James, uh, the great philosopher, and on and on and on. Um, they all agree with this. They all agree with this that this is something that's not outside of the realm of possibility for anybody. And um, it's something that you, ha- that you can only gain through effort on your own. Nobody can teach it to you. Um, you just have to try until it works. Um, and, you know, we all, we all understand that there are faculties that we, we have as potential. And the example of reading is going to come up later. It's like all human beings have the ability to learn to read. But you have to practice it. And if you don't, you never develop that ability. You never develop the faculty of being able to read you can you just haven't done the work and this is kind of what he means he's like there's something else here that can be practiced and developed and when you do it's going to open your eyes to to part of reality that you're otherwise not able to experience and that's intriguing you know all right he says we must understand That prejudice against the higher truths lies deep in the very being of our age. We must understand clearly that the great successes, the immense advance marking of our time, necessarily encourages this condition. The civilization of the present day is the result of the training of our senses and of that part of our mind which is occupied with the world of sense. They continue to abide by the senses and the mind because it is by the means of these that they have grown great. And what he's saying here is there's prejudice against what I'm about to tell you. Because what, what he's going to tell you is that, you, that there are ways that, that we should be focusing on our inner selves, our spirit, our consciousness, our soul, whatever you might want to call it. And if we do that, we have to take attention away from the external world. And all the attention that we've put on the external world is you know in the last few hundred years has produced benefits beyond imagining culture and technology in particular so yeah there's going to be a lot of prejudice when somebody says look we should focus less on the external world focus more on on you know the inner world and that's go- going to provide benefits well why would i spend time focusing on the inner self if i could instead focus you know, on scientific pursuits of the external world. Who knows what technology is going to come out of that? Who knows what scientific breakthrough is going to come out of that? Shouldn't it my time be better spent focusing on the outside? And that's a good, a good point. It's hard to argue that point. And he he just wants to say that. You know, right in the beginning, this is where the prejudice comes from, because. By focusing on matter and, and science and the things we can measure, uh, that's allowed us to manipulate the world in ways we've never been able to do. Our lives are all greater for it, better for it, easier for it. So the effort that we would otherwise spend um, you know, focusing on our, our inner selves might be better spent just continuing to do the science business we've been doing. And that's a good point. But I must say there's lots of other people that make the same critique. Um, psychologists and some social scientists in particular that will say people's emphasis on materialism and and science's uh, emphasis on, um, you know, only those things in the world that can be observed and measured, uh, that those things... leave gaps and deficiencies in other places. Like They might be the reason why we have such high levels of depression and suicide in in the world. They may be the reason why we have so much political unrest and division between us. There's all sorts of things about mental health and well-being and social health and well-being that might be a consequence of our focusing too much on the outside world and not enough on ourselves, something like that. And Steiner says, the higher powers are developed only on planes higher than the physical. And the knowledge which these faculties bring is therefore unknown to the physical man. Right, So that's where the prejudice comes from. It's like you have to go beyond the physical to get any of the benefits and any of the knowledge that Steiner's going to enlighten us with here pretty soon. And because we live in this physical world and our attention on the physical has benefited us so much. We've become physical people. We've become less and less spiritual people. We don't even really understand what that means. We don't connect with it anymore. It just seems like hokum to us. And maybe that's a problem. He says, When one wishes to understand revelation, one must employ the kind of knowledge through which the revelation itself has come to us. And I think that's interesting. So, by revelation, he's, he, he he means a message from God. That's what he, that's what revelation is, you know. But maybe that's something that we can find within ourselves, you know, as we're seeking for God. Maybe maybe that's where we can find the source of revelation. And he's kind of making a point here that academic people and scientific-minded people, atheists in particular, really don't have or shouldn't have anything to say about revelation because, because religious experience can only really be examined by the mystical perspective. Like you have to have had an experience, a religious experience to have any, th- any grounds to talk about what a religious experience is or means or whether it exists, you know? And Steiner was a mystic. So he's in a position to tell us so, Steiner, what do you have to tell us, man? He says, He who develops within himself the mystical power of perception soon observes that in certain stories of the Old Testament there are revealed to him truths of a higher nature than those which may be comprehended by the intellect. These myths have proceeded out of a mystic perception of transcendental truths, so this is something I've experienced myself. What he's saying here is once you've had a mystic experience, once you have the, the proper perspective, then you can read religious stories like the things that appear in the Old Testament. And you can see the stories that other people write off, you know, as, as myths and fantasy and, and you know, whatever, post hoc rationalizations. Um You can see those same stories, and yet, behind them, you can see the mystical truths. You can see the things that are trying to be communicated in the story. And all these people who never had a mystic experience, they read the story and they only see the narrative. They don't see, they don't recognize the value in the story. They don't see the mystic truths because they have nothing to compare it to. They don't know what it is they're being told. Um, and I have to say, like, as an example, um, the story of uh, Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. Um, that story never had a huge effect on me uh, when I was a kid, and and I you know learned those stories never had a huge Im- impact on me. After I had a mystic experience, I read that story and I was completely blown away. It wasn't the same story anymore. So what I mean is. If you know the story, I mean, this is going to be uh, nothing you don't already know, but you know, Jesus goes up to John the Baptist, John the Baptist submerges him in water. He baptizes him, and when he pulls him out of the water, a dove descends from heaven, and light shines down on Jesus, and he hears the voice of God saying that you are my son, in whom I'm well pleased, something like that. And that story, for many people, is just a story, and it means exactly what I said. It means nothing more than the words I just said. And the pictures that maybe popped in your head while I was telling it. But to somebody who's had a mystic experience, it's, it's completely different. Like, I don't know how I would describe what happened to me when I had a mystic experience. I've done, it, I've done it many times. I've tried to describe it. It's always very difficult to put words to. But I can see, if I was a poetic-minded person, that I might say something exactly like that. That I had an experience where the heavens opened to me. A divine light shone down on me, and you know the spirit of God came down, you know, in in some interaction with me, and I heard the voice of God. I can easily easily see somebody telling the story that way. Now, do those two stories mean the same thing? I'm sure there's lots of traditional. Uh, religious people out there that are screaming at me right now like no those stories don't mean the same thing and you're the one that's wrong Uh, and I respectfully disagree I think the majority of Christians are wrong believing only the surface of the story not ever understanding the deeper significance this is what Steiner's pointing out and I think I, I just can't disagree with that man I think there's something to that All right, then he says Instead of demanding that everyone should think independently on the so-called revelations, we ought rather to consider that only he who has developed those powers which make it possible for him to relive what was realized by those very mystics has a right to decide anything about the matter. No one can discover who was born in Bethlehem, but he who has mystically experienced the Christ within himself. Man, the hair on my arms just standing up. Amazing, amazing. No one can discover who was born in Bethlehem. What, what does he mean by that? We know what he means by that. He said nobody can know who Jesus was, really, until he's had the mystical experience of understanding the Christ within himself. Now, I think that is very deeply true. You can understand that a baby was born in Bethlehem, but you cannot understand what the significance of the story of Jesus was until you've had a mystic experience. All right, and I was going to quote Meister Eckhart, which, by the way, is another mystic. He's a religious man, but another mystic that I am just chomping at the bit to get into, so that's probably going to be in the future. But Meister, Meister Eckhart says this, There are some who desire to see God with their eyes. Simple-minded people imagine that God may be seen as if he stood here, but this is not so. In that perception, God and I are one. Fuck, man, that hair is standing up on my arms. God and I are one. So that's what he means by that is that the person who desires to see God, to have an encounter um, with God, to experience God, that person has to get to a place where they can understand that God and I are one. Only then will you understand that the experience of your life is the experience you're seeking. You're seeking an encounter with God, right? And, until you realize that your experience is the experience of God, you're never going to find God. Carl Jung said, people don't find God because they don't look low enough. There's something deeply, deeply true about that. Okay, Steiner says, the life of the Spirit can be understood only when we do not presume to criticize it, but rather when we develop it reverently within ourselves. No one can hope to learn anything of the higher truths if he demands that they shall be lowered to the average understanding. All right, so that's, that's, that's kind of a critical sounding statement. I think it is critical of the culture, you know, that Steiner was criticizing the culture. Uh, we can see that. I mean, that, that's the same thing that Philip Goff points to in Galileo's error. It's the same point that people bring up when they bring up Descartes. This idea of dualism, that science was separated from this idea, from, from spirituality in this early, early time, and that it was a huge, huge mistake. That reality ha- is both material and conscious. And if we only explore the material side of things, we're only ever learning half of the world. So he says something here about not being critical, and it's going to come up again. You see, it some, has something to do with being open minded. And it's something to do with our preconceptions, like what I said to you at the beginning of the podcast. I never would have considered any sort of occult thinkers as serious thinkers because it's a bunch of hokum, right? It's, it's a bunch of make-believe. That's a preconception that I had, a judgment that that got in the way of me learning any of this. That's the kind of thing he means. Don't presume to criticize the spirit, if you're one of those people that is an atheist or not particularly religious and doesn't see any, any reality to the idea of the spirit or psyche, um, you're never going to get any further. You have to get beyond this desire to criticize because it's just a wall that you're putting up. You, know, you have to be able to discern. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is to dive fucking in. Can't be, you can't be afraid, you can't be trying to protect yourself, and you can't be avoiding what you think is not worth your time, because how do you know? How do you know? You have to give it the time, you got to give it the attention. And he says, no one can hope to learn anything of the higher truths if he demands that they shall be lowered to the average understanding. He also says, it is the task of this book to extend the field of scientific investigation into the superphysical. Then he asks, how may one attain to superphysical truths? Okay, so that's the question. So this last bit is good, man. It's It goes back to Galileo's era. It goes back to the Descartes uh, uh, item I brought up a, a moment ago. When the early days of science and, the you know, I guess the conflict between um, science and religion back then, demanded that we split up these two fields and pretend that the two halves of human experience are separate things, one we call religion and spirit, the other one we call matter and science, that that was a huge mistake. And what Steiner wants to do is expand the field of science. By that he means the scientific method and all the stuff that worked so well in our investigation of matter. He wants to use that to examine the superphysical world, the spiritual world, so how do we do that? That brings me to the next section, which is called Knowledge of the Higher Worlds. Okay, Steiner says, In every man there are latent faculties by means of which he may acquire knowledge of the higher worlds. There is no fundamental difference between occult knowledge and all the rest of man's knowledge. The mystic knowledge is no more a secret for the average man and writing is a secret to him who has never learned to read. For the attainment of knowledge in the higher worlds, there is no obstacle for him who sincerely searches for it. And this goes back to what he said earlier when he said, "I am not a cho- not chosen." It's like this, this higher faculties, you know, this ability to come into into contact or to experience a spiritual reality that's something that's possible for everyone and anyone you know and that's interesting because usually when when religions are formed whatever knowledge whatever golden nugget is being held over the heads of the devout is used as a I don't want to say weapon, but it's definitely used as a tool for control, a tool for power, right? So if I have the key to salvation of your soul and the key to, you know, a pleasant afterlife, I'm the priest and you're going to listen to every goddamn thing I have to say. And you're going to do everything I ask you to do. And you know, that goes, that goes off, off the walls. We know how human beings are. That's not what Steiner does. He says, no, I am, I'm not chosen, and this is something available to anybody who seeks after it. That's an that's a interesting thing to point out, because what it says is that Steiner is not, at least on the surface, the kind of person that wants to control the keys to the kingdom. It's not somebody who wants to control access to this higher knowledge, and it's not somebody that wants to hold it over you and have any power over you as a consequence. And there's something good about that. There's something that makes Steiner seem more trustworthy by saying that. Then he says, no one shall receive any occult knowledge until he is worthy and well prepared. So this is an interesting statement. Um, It's something that comes up a lot. Um, Not just in Steiner's work, but in lots of occult work, um, going back to the ancient times. And it's interesting, but I think it's it speaks to a truth, um, to a human truth that until we get to the point where we ask the right questions, till we're ready to ask the right questions, till we're ready to question things we hadn't questioned before. We're never prepared to receive any new information. We're never, we're never going to get any anywhere, anywhere further. You know, we have, we have to get to a certain point where, where we're ready. And so he's pointing that out, that this is part of the process. I mean, it, it has something to do with patience, and it has something to do with discipline, and, and to keep, continue trying, and we're going to see more of that. Um, but if, as long as we don't give up, that ultimately this is something that's available to anybody who wants it. And it just, it just reminds me of certain biblical passages like, uh, um, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened, things like that. All right, so now we get into it. He says, he must begin with a certain fundamental attitude of the soul, the path of veneration. There are children who look up with religious awe to those whom they venerate. From the ranks of such children are recruited many disciples. Have you ever paused outside the door of some venerated man and felt a religious awe as you pressed the handle? Then there has been manifested in you an emotion which may be the germ of your future discipleship. So this is the first bit. I'm going to call this Edict 1, awe. Okay, so he says the path of veneration is, is seeking out this feeling of awe, of being in the presence of something greater than yourself. And if that, can be, if that feeling can be projected onto a great man, um, you know, like, a, like he's describing in this example, fine. But for many people, it's a mountain, or it's the night sky with all the stars and the, the arm of the Milky Way, you know? Anything that makes you feel like you're in the presence of something greater than yourself, something massively greater than yourself, that is where you want to begin. Begin with that fundamental attitude, seeking awe, okay? Okay, I, I, I like that. Um, I definitely know what he means. Uh, that's definitely a spiritual feeling. So that's where it begins. And he says, if we do not develop within ourselves this feeling that there is something higher than ourselves, we shall never find enough strength to evolve to something higher. The heights of the spirit can only be reached by passing through the portals of humility. So awe and humility. Humility. Now, awe and humility are interesting because they kind of, to me, sound like uh, opposites. And this is a this is one way in which um, God is conceptualized as the union of opposites. You know, awe is, is something, a feeling, an emotion that is attached to the very highest of things. Humility is an emotion that's attached to the very lowest of things. And what Steiner is asking us to do is to embrace both feelings sort of opposite feelings. And that the paradox there is something that always comes up when mystics talk. And here we see it with Steiner. So Edict One has to do with facilitating all and experiencing all, seeking it out. Then he says, every judgment, every criticism, frustrates the powers of the soul in the same measure that all heartfelt devotion develops them. So judgment and criticism are, are something that to be avoided, right? He says, it's like, I don't know what comes to your mind when he talks about judgment and criticism, but it seems to me like presuppositions and unquestioned assumptions, those are the kind of things that, that can hold you back, can hold you back from seeing possibilities. And when we're talking about seeking God, you really have to be open to possibilities because there's not much we know about God. You know, closing off the avenues of possibility seems like a bad idea. And he says, He who seeks for higher knowledge must create it within himself. It cannot be done by study. It can only be done through living. And I think that's interesting. It's another... Well, it's another shoot-yourself-in-the-foot moment if you're trying to start a religion, right? I mean, he says that those who seek the higher knowledge must create it within himself. So that means not only is this higher knowledge to only to be found, only to be found within yourself, but it's something that you create. So nobody has any power over that but you, not a priest, not, you know, not, not a church, not, not your community, nobody, only you. And then he says something interesting when he says it cannot be done by study. Because this is something that both Carl Jung and kind of the mystical Hindus, the, the Upanishads, um, talk about. And the Upanishad specifically says the Atman, which is the soul of God, but it's also the soul that animates your body. The Atman cannot be known by reading scripture. And it cannot be taught. You know, that's what the Upanishads tell us. That's what Steiner tells us. So it can only be done through living. What does that mean? If it can't be learned by being told, but you have to actually live in order to have that understanding, what that means is that it's unknowable. There's some knowledge that isn't knowable cognitively. It can only be experienced. And if you think that's silly, I mean, let, let me give you an example. Falling in love. You hear all about that when you're growing up. You see it in movies. You see it d- described visually. You see it written in books and poetry. You know, you, you, you see it in your, in your parents and grandparents, let's say, um, if, you have, if you have a loving family. But you have no idea what that means until you fall in love. See what I mean? There, I- there are things like that that aren't, that aren't something that can be learned but must be experienced. And it seems that the higher self, or God, is one of those things. All right. Then we get to our second edict. The first one is pursuing awe. The second one is, says this. Everywhere in his environment, he must look for that which demands of him admiration and homage. So I don't know what that might mean to you. To me, it sounds like pursue the sacred. Right? What is it that demands admiration and homage? When you look around, when you have experiences in the world, and something catches your attention is something worth admiring, it's usually something that you want to imitate. It's something that strikes you. Like I'll give you an example. I have a buddy Josh, he's been on the podcast before, he has one of his own called Faith, Fringe, and Freedom. Um he his uh, brother-in-law when we were kids um he was older than us 5 6 years older than us and he uh would do things with us even though we were young and i listen i had a brother the same age and he didn't have want to have anything to do with me he thought i was a young kid and i was interfering with his you know with his big boy time and you know he didn't want me hanging out with his friends I, you know i understand i was 5 years younger than him but uh but Josh's brother-in-law wasn't like that and he was a very generous dude, man, not just with his time, um, you know, and, and, giving us the time of day, but he took us out. He like spent money on us and we, we did, we grew up with sort of low means. So anybody willing to do that, he just made an impression on me. So, so his being generous as an example was something that, I mean, to this day, I remember it. And it's like, to this day, I, I think to myself, you should be more like that. Anytime you can do that and be like that, you should do it. It's good. So it's something that I saw made a huge impression on me. It's like something about this behavior is just valuable in this way that I have a hard time describing. But I knew it was something worth pursuing for myself. I wanted it for myself. I wanted to be generous like that and to give good feelings like he gave to me to other people. So things like that that shine, you know, that bring your attention in. Um, you know it, it could be a characteristic a quality somebody has. Uh, it could be beauty you know and, and all sorts of different manifestations. but there are things that draw our attention that we admire and that we want to we want to imitate. And I think that's the sacred. That's something that we can point to in all sorts of different ways and say, you know that's worth my attention and my admiration. So pursue the sacred. Then he says he should try to abstain entirely from all criticism or judgment. So maybe we'll call that Enoch number three. That has to do with humility, which he brought up earlier. It also has to do with, has to do with this, this idea of mystic unity that mystics understand. You know, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, he says to turn the other cheek, that sort of thing. What he means by that is something like what Steiner means here. Abstain entirely from criticism or judgment. You know, Jesus would say, he who is without sin may cast the first stone. This is what he's saying. He's saying something like, look, people are people. People aren't perfect. People make mistakes. Everybody has to grow and transform, and you are no different than anybody else. So do not judge other people. Do not criticize other people. But rather, see yourself in that, in that person understand why they would do something like that or how they might they might do something like that so try to bring yourself into some kind of unity with the, with the people around you so try to see yourself in them and them in you something like that then he says the disciple should seek to benefit both himself and others so we might call that edict 4 should seek to benefit yourself and others that also has something to do with identifying with others right because it's, it's, it's love your neighbor as yourself it's that same sort of thing you want to benefit yourself and others so if good things happen to other people don't be that spiteful guy that's jealous be happy for them that something good has happened why because you see them as yourself it's as though something good happened to you so this is an exercise, just like the humility exercise, that brings your identity in line with the rest of the rest of the cosmos. Then he says, the continual searching for the good in all things. So that we'll call Edict 5. And I think that has to do with unity as well. Seeing the good in all things is to see the vein that runs through all things. What is common in all things? And if that's good, if you're trying to seek the good in all things, that's something that's related to the divine. It's something that's related to God. It's like seeing the sacred or seeking the sacred, like we said in in the second edict. Seeing God in all things. And it also has something to do with a, a unified identity. If God is within all things, including yourself, then you are no different than anything else. And all of this stuff, as weird as it might sound... Makes perfect sense to someone who's had a mystic experience. You can see the steps of slowly closing the gap between how you view yourself and the cosmos, bringing those things together. Because that's what the mystic experience does it tells you that all is one. So that's what Steiner is trying to get you to, step by step. All right, he says, We have it in our power to perfect ourselves and to transform ourselves completely. But this transformation must take place in the innermost self. It is not enough that I show respect in my outward bearing. I must have this respect in my thought. The disciple must begin by drawing this devotion into his thought life. He must altogether banish from his consciousness all thoughts of disrespect, of criticism. We rise rapidly when we fill our consciousness with admiration, respect, and veneration for men and things. In every such moment, powers are awakened in man, which otherwise would remain dormant. So we're going to see some, he's going to give us a little bit more details about what he means by that in a minute. But the dictum here is to fill our consciousness with admiration, respect, and veneration for men and things. And if we do that, powers will be awakened in us that we didn't know about before. I don't know if you can hear some of the, uh, some of the things that ring of Jung in here, but when he talks about transformation, that's something that Jung talks about all the time. Um, in fact, he says we have the power of perfecting ourselves and completing ourselves by transforming. That's exactly what Jung says. He wrote a whole book uh, I can't remember what it was called. If it was just called transformation or the something about transformation, I can't remember. Um, I mean, it's literally exactly what the depth psychologists talk about. Okay, he says, he begins to understand that hitherto he has seen only a part of the world around him. So once you awaken these faculties, you're going to start to see the world in a different way. You're going to start to see that there is more to the world than you thought it always reminds me of a quote from maps of meaning from from Jordan Peterson's book um, and I'm gonna, it's, it's I'm probably going to fail to remember here um, he says something like we are more than we understand by a tremendous margin and that's true and like you know the the ancient greeks said to know thyself that's the most important thing you know to know thyself and when you know when you finally come to that understanding of what it is you are, you realize what Jordan Peterson says is exactly true. You are more than you imagine by a tremendous margin. Okay, he says, It is not easy for people to believe that reverence, respect, and so forth have anything to do with their perceptions. In so thinking, we do not remember that it is the soul which perceives and feelings are for the soul what food is for the body veneration homage devotion makes it healthy and strong and it is this excuse me and in this it receives information in its environment of which it hitherto had no knowledge so this is how the world this is how you begin to see the world differently because you have these senses, right, that are showing you information that's always been there. But you didn't have the faculties to to perceive them before. And now you can. And suddenly the world takes on a whole new feel, a whole new look. You know, it's, it's something else. Anybody who's had a mystic experience knows what I mean. Uh, I'll give you an example. One of the things I wrote down after I had my first mystic experience is that I had this... For days and days and days afterwards, I had, this, I had this very strange feeling that everybody I saw, strangers, my, my family, you know, people I work with, everybody I encountered seemed more like myself than I, than I ever could have imagined. It was almost like, it felt almost like it was an illusion that there was a difference between me and them at all. And the same thing happened when I was watching television, like just people on TV. It was very weird. Um, Things seem alive in a way that they didn't um, before. So there's, there's a qualitatively powerful, qualitative difference in how you see the world in yourself. And that's what he's talking about. He said one learns to give oneself less and less to the impressions of the outer world and to develop a vivid inward life. Neither should the disciple blunt himself to the outer world, but let his rich inner life point out the direction in which he ought to lend himself to its impressions. When passing through a beautiful mountain district, the man with depth of soul has different experiences from the man with few emotions only what we experience within ourselves reveals the beauties of the outer world one man sails across the ocean and only a few inward experiences pass through his soul but another will hear the eternal language of the world's spirit okay so the hair standing up my arms so imagine you're the, you know go back to the early 1900s when this book was written you're sailing across the ocean to get from Europe to America. It's a long trip. It's a dangerous trip, but it's a beautiful sight, I'm sure. You're, you know, you're on this boat. You're rocking around in the open ocean. It's got to be a tremendously beautiful thing to see the waves, the, you know, the, everything, you know everything, just nothing but water as far as you can see. God, there's got to be feelings of awe involved with that if you've ever seen the ocean. I mean, you, you understand that. Somebody sailing on that boat looks out and sees lots and lots of water and a, and, a, and a bunch of frustration and time trying to get to my destination. Another person on that boat who's had a mystic experience looks out at that same sight and sees the world spirit, the infinite depth, um, you know, the unconscious made manifest in the ocean all around you, this infinite plane like space around you, this feeling of awe and transcendence and as out-of-body experience. You see what I mean? These two people are having the same experience. One of them is supremely meaningful. One of them is mundane. That's the difference. That's the difference in in how you see the world when you've developed these faculties, as Steiner puts it. He says, every phenomenon in the outer world is full of divine splendor, but one must have felt the divine within oneself before one may hope to discover it without I think that's true. You must feel the divine within yourself before you can experience it in the world around you. And once you experience it in yourself, you immediately experience it in the world around you. And then you're confronted with that mystic unity. I am one with the universe, as the mystics say. Okay, that brings me to edict number six. It goes like this. Set apart certain moments of daily life during which to withdraw into oneself, quietly and alone. During these moments, listen to the echoes of what you have experienced, of what the outward world has told you. Then every flower, every animal, every action will unveil secrets undreamed of and thus receive new impressions of the external world as if viewed with different eyes. This is the difference between the guy that sees the ocean as a bunch of water in his way and one that looks at the ocean and sees God. So meditation. And this is really the biggest part of it. Meditation. To meditate on yourself. On the experiences you've had. And it's, it's funny because. He talks about. Your experiences as being impressions. You know like the world makes impressions on your soul. The, everything you see and experience is like that. And he's saying that once you've develop these spiritual faculties, that those impressions change. So it's not just how you perceive the world, but it also has something to do with how your experiences affect your soul, how they, how it affects you. And then he says, all knowledge, which you seek for working in the service of humanity and for the uplifting of the world, brings you a step forward. So again, that reminds me of love your neighbor as yourself. It reminds me of mystic unity. It's also something like self-sacrifice, right? Working for the service of humanity. That's something like self-sacrifice, which you can see embodied in, you know, religious characters like Jesus or any martyr for that matter. But it's also symbolic of something like an ego death, you know, self-sacrifice, dying to yourself. You know, that's something that happens in mystic experience. And people use the word ego death to describe that. It's like dying. And then Steiner says, in many occult schools, this truth is expressed, and he gives a quote here, every idea which becomes an ideal creates within you a vital force. And man, I I just don't know that I see anything more, more closely related to Carl Jung than that. Every idea which becomes an ideal, what does that mean? So you have an idea... And it becomes, you know, something that you strive towards. It's an ideal, something you want to become, some transformation that you want from yourself or the world. Any idea that becomes an ideal creates within you a vital force. Well, it's something like your will, you know, this this vital force. Um, it's something that moves you. And that's what Carl Jung called archetypes. And he said that there are these... You know, to use Steiner's words, super-physical things, these ideas that exist, you know, in in the unconscious, in some some place, some realm that's not like the here and now. It's not like the physical world, but it's within everyone. And those archetypes are motivational forces. They literally move you. They cause you to seek the things you desire. Maybe they create desire and interest, you know, uh, in the first place. They move you like a vital force, And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call the path. It starts with edict number seven, and it goes like this. Keep watch over each of your actions and each of your words in order that you may not hinder the free will of any human being. Huh. See, I love that, but it's also another nail in the coffin of Steiner's ever becoming a religion, right? Because he's saying don't ever impose your will on anybody because you must preserve free will in order to every human being needs to have the freedom to act as they choose. They need to have the freedom to pursue a spiritual path. So you can't impose anything on them. You can't force it on you. You already, he's already said that, right? You can't teach or learn how to, how to be, uh, spiritual and how to awaken your higher self. It can't be taught and it can't be forced. It has to be a voluntary effort. So you should never impose your will on anyone. That free will and the individual are key. And that's something that's reflected in Christianity, certainly. That's something that's reflected in, um, you know, the, um, the divinity of the individual, right? I also think that if you impose your will on others, when you've had a mystic experience and you realize that others are just yourself, that, that your identity really is one with them, that imposing your will on, on anybody else, it's, it's to make them a slave in some way. And, and you have to realize that that's making yourself a slave. That's not something that you want to do. All right, then he, he gives us a little bit more on uh, edict number six, which is about meditation. He says this, Provide for yourself moments of inward calm, And in these moments, learn to distinguish between the real and the unreal. At these periods, a man should raise himself completely above his workaday life. His joys and sorrows, his cares, experiences, and actions must pass in review before his soul. And he must cultivate a frame of mind which enables him to regard all his experiences from a higher point of view. We need only bear in mind how different is the point of view from which we regard the experiences and actions of another and that from which we judge our own. Our aim must be to judge our own actions as though it were not ourselves, but some other person. When this is attained, our own experiences present themselves in a new light. When we attain to a calm survey, the real is separated from the unreal. All right, so this is good so this is more about how we should be meditating and and part of this is to um be able to develop this um sense of calm and serenity in your mind to get to this quiet inner place like people who meditate generally do and he says that it'll it'll allow you to distinguish between the real and the unreal and i think what this means i mean it, first of all it's it's something like what I talk about with idealism, um, where it's, it's it's like I believe everything is something like mind or consciousness. So if you have a feeling like that, an intuition like that, that's really going to boggle your mind when you start thinking about it. Like what's real and what's not real? When we say real, we usually mean material. We mean things that are governed by physics. Is that the only thing that's real? And if not, is that real at all? Is the, is the you know if that's not all there is to it, maybe. Maybe what's not physical and, and governed by the laws of physics is real, and everything else is an illusion. So it gets you to th- question reality in ways you never would before. But psychologically, it does something else. So if you can separate yourself from your actions, if you can meditate and like imagine yourself coming out of your body and watching yourself think and act like you're like you're a third person, or imagine that you're a stranger and you're watching a stranger do what you're doing, you're going to judge them differently than you would judge yourself. People judge ourselves way harder than we judge strangers, by the way. So that's part of it. Um, part of it is the distance that's needed to to, to be objective. You know, it's like um, uh, for a while my, um, there was a lot of, uh, Conflict going on in my family, and I I live a couple hundred miles away from everyone else. So if I would get involved in these conversations, it was always like bringing an unbiased perspective in. I can see things nobody else can see because they're all mad about this or that, you know. So having some distance is important. But when it comes to determining what's real and what's unreal, I think that separating yourself from yourself not only allows you to... It starts to build this... um, this ability of conceptualizing yourself is not uh, exactly the same as your body, which is which I think is important for spirituality. But it also allows yourself to see all the stuff that you pretend not to see, like the ways that we fool ourselves. And you know what I mean. We we provide rationalizations for why we do this and that. We make excuses for ourselves. Um, we do all sorts of things like that to to get by. And it's it's. It becomes much harder to do that when you separate yourself from your thoughts and emotions and you just look at yourself objectively. So that should be part of this meditation practice. Then he says, For in every human being, there is, besides what we call the workaday man, a higher being. This higher being remains concealed until it is awakened. And each of us can only awaken it for himself, Until a seeker feels this magic force within him, he must continue to follow strictly and earnestly the rules given. To every man who thus perseveres, the day will come when a spiritual light is revealed to him and a whole new world is discerned by an eye within him. And I think this is the eighth and final edict. Until a seeker feels this magic force within him, he must continue to follow strictly and earnestly the rules given. So one through seven should be continued um, and you should have discipline in doing rules one through seven until you feel the awakening of this, of this inner self, this higher being. And again, Jung talks exactly along these lines. He calls that the self with a capital S or the soul, you know? And he says, in the moment set apart, he has a higher life of his own. By that, he just means while you're meditating, you have a higher life of your own. He says, gradually, this higher life, the whole man will grow calmer, will attain serenity in his actions, and will cease to be perturbed. A student who thus advances will guide himself more and more and be less governed by circumstances and external influences. He will cease to be annoyed by things that formerly worried him, and matters that once filled him with fear will now cease to alarm him. So I think this has to do with those impressions that we get from the world. And you guys all know this, when you have certain emotions, usually they're deep biological emotions that we inherited from our deep, deep ancestors, you know, the emotions that have to do with jealousy and violence and and lust and sex and things like that, that when those emotions seize us, it really does seem like we're possessed by a spirit. It's like we, we become anger. I'm not me anymore. I'm like a vehicle through which anger, you know, acts. Um, you know, we and lust is another good example. It, it, it almost seem like you're, it's not entirely under your control, and that's what Young and Jordan Peterson call transpersonal forces—the things that they that they point to and say. When you look at classical gods, like the, the Greco-Roman gods or the Egyptian gods or the Norse gods, those are the kind of things they represent these transpersonal forces. And we get to a point when we've developed this higher self that we no longer feel like we're out of control. We no longer feel like those transpersonal forces can possess us and take over because there's something else there who's the boss, this higher self that we've we've awakened. Now we're not going to be slaves at the whim of our instincts. We're going to be governed by this higher force. Then he says, Formerly, he may have taken up this or that task with a sense of timidity. Now he suppresses the thought which encourages timidity. He begins to steer his own ship on a firm, secure course among the waves of life, which formerly tossed it helplessly to and fro. This calm and serenity assists the growth of the inner man. It is by progress in this direction that the student determines the manner in which impressions of the external world shall affect him. So it's like conquering your instincts, becoming more fully conscious, and being able to willfully determine your actions and reactions, and not to be possessed by these emotions that would otherwise just steer the, steer the, you know, steer the car, steer the vehicle. He says that the higher man becomes the inner ruler... So see, that's what Jung would call the self. The higher man becomes the inner ruler who directs the circumstances of the outer man. If another than myself has the power to make me angry, I am not master of myself. Or to put it better, I have not yet found the ruler within me. I must develop the power within of letting the impressions of the outer world approach me only in the way in which I choose. And that's so important. It's so powerful. That's not something I've accomplished, but I'm, but I'm trying. It's like when somebody evokes or some action evokes anger or jealousy, let's say, in you, to be able to kind of notice that, grab a hold of it and pull it back and say, no, I, ge- I will decide how I react to this. I'm not going to let these forces within me, these archetypal forces push and pull me around. No, 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 no more. I get to choose how I react to, to to the world and to my circumstances. And that is a huge advantage. If anybody's seen like a heated argument and somebody just keeps their cool the whole time, you know who wins that argument. Even if they're wrong, the person that keeps her cool was winning that argument. And so this is part of it. He says, we must remember that the higher being in a man is in constant development. No outward force can supply space for the inner man. It can only be supplied by the inner calm, which he may give to his soul. The student must himself give birth to the new and higher man within him. Okay, so this stuff about the higher being, uh, being in a constant state of development, that's also pretty interesting. Because most people would say the higher being, let's call that God, is the only unchanging certainty. It's the foundation of reality. It's the only thing that's outside of space and time and doesn't change. It's the unmoved mover. That's what Aristotle called him. But that's not what Steiner says. Steiner says what Jung says that the higher being is transformation itself. And that's reflected in reality. You see that with evolution, you see that with the birth and death of stars and with gravity and all that. Everything's constantly changing, transforming. That is what's at the basis of everything. That's the matrix of being. And that's what Steiner recognizes. And that's not what most religious traditions say. And I think that is stunning. And he says, Everything depends on the energy and serenity with which we contemplate ourselves and our actions from the standpoint of a stranger. To come outside of oneself... You know, that's, what, that's the way Hegel put it, the philosopher Hegel. It is necessary for him to be no longer connected with his own individual circumstances. In this way, something within him rises beyond the personal point of view. Thus, his gaze is directed to higher worlds than those he knows in everyday life. And then he begins to feel and realize that he belongs to these higher worlds about which his senses can tell him Nothing. He shifts the central point of his being to the inner part of his nature. He listens to the voices within him. And inwardly, he cultivates an intercourse with the spiritual world. And isn't that exactly what Carl Jung did? Listen to the voices within him. You know, in the Red Book, I mean, he calls them archetypes. And and there's all sorts of names, you know, the mother and and the trickster and, um, you know, all all these various ways of talking about these internal forces. But in the Red Book, he calls them the spirit of the depths and the spirit of the time. He has these these spirits within him, you know, these these motivational psychological forces, the thing that wants you to do this instead of that, the thing that wants you to uh, lie and steal instead of be honest, you know, the thing that, uh, you know wants you to focus on uh, reproduction, you know, and giving you these lusty feelings and, uh, and uh, you know, instincts, the thing that wants you to defend your territory and causes you to get angry, all these animalistic motivational forces that are in our biology, Jung listens to them, he evokes them, he lets them come to him from his unconscious so he, so he can tell what they are and what they want of him, and that gives him control over them. That allows him to, to be the boss, you know, to, to be that, that inner ruler that Steiner's talking about. And in the Red Book, he absolutely has an intercourse with them. He speaks to the spirits and they speak to him. It's amazing. Imagine, imagine that being possible with you. To have a way of, of understanding your, your desires and your impulses as thoughts and ideas that are coming or being generated by forces within you And you come to know those forces and you understand that they aren't you exactly. And then you can control them. And then you can direct them. Then they become weapons in your arsenal instead of things that are pulling the strings like making you a puppet. Imagine that. And he says, he must learn to love the inpouring of the spirit. Then he will learn to regard this thought world and its thought forms as more real than the everyday things which surround him. And he begins to deal with thoughts as with things existing in space. Okay, there's more to this. But man, this is the best part as far as I'm concerned. He says he will learn to regard this thought world. Okay, what is your thought world? You might call that something like your unconscious. It's not the world of perception, but it's some other world that you're a part of, your thought world. And then he talks about its thought forms. And that's exactly what Jung called archetypes, thought forms. And he says that they're more real than the everyday things around you. And that's true. Because every human being has these archetypal forces uh, within them. And when you die, they're going to exist in the future generations. And they've existed in all past generations. They're this eternal, immortal part of us is that realer than the, than the things around you that come and go? I think so. And he says, and to deal with those thoughts as though you're dealing with things existing in the real world, in space. Well, that's what Carl Jung did in the Red Book when he was talking to the spirit of the depths and the spirit of the times. He's dealing with the spirits within him as though they're real things, and they are real things. They're motivational forces. They're, they're they're part of your biology they're part of your your you know cognitive functioning they're deep deep down can't get rid of them they're they're there like other personalities that exist within yourself and the quote continues he discovers that his thought world is an expression of life that's exactly jung said exactly that that the unconscious is the force of life he says, let me start over. He discovers that his thought world is an expression of life and realizes that thoughts are not mere phantoms, but that through them, beings speak to him. So, I mean, you know this. Thoughts and ideas come from somewhere. You don't know where they come. Have you ever had an epiphany? An idea just comes to you? You're like, that's a goddamn good idea. Where'd it come from? It came from your unconscious. Something speaking through you. Something like that. Steiner goes on, he says, An inner language and an inner voice are revealed to him. And it is a moment of supremest ecstasy to the student when his experience first comes to him. An inner light floods the whole world for him, and he is born anew. Through his being passes a current from a divine world. This meditation is the means by which supersensual knowledge is attained. Let him study the wisdom which originated in such moments of meditation. So I think this last bit is a description of the mystic experience. It's, it's Steiner's describing, I can only assume, what happened to him. He said, in that moment of supremest ecstasy... An inner light floods the whole world, and he's born anew. Yes. Does that sound a bit like what happened to Jesus when he got brought up out of the water by John the Baptist? It does, doesn't it? That's a mystical experience that's being described. All right, we're getting close here. He says, such meditations produce a complete transformation in the student. He begins to form entirely new conceptions of reality. All things acquire fresh values in his eyes. For he begins to realize that his most insignificant experiences are in close connection with the great cosmic being. Fuck, man. Exactly. That's that mystical unity, that one with the universe. Like, even the most insignificant things that have ever happened to me are intricately connected to the cosmic whole, to the whole of reality. And then the last quote here is those who rise to that which unites man with spirit are bringing to life within them the eternal element. Meditation becomes the way by which man attains recognition of his eternal, indestructible, essential being. Meditation alone can revive the memory that lie beyond the borders of birth and death. Man. Man. So I don't know what you think about Steiner, but here's my conclusion. Truth be told, I began this exploration of Steiner as a skeptic. Even the words occult or esoteric have historically been enough to turn my attention elsewhere. To say nothing of clairvoyance, which Steiner also endorses. Images of witchcraft and pseudo-pagan rituals come to mind... Crystals and energy healing aren't far behind either. These have always been the kinds of things I've relegated to the realm of coincidence at best, and fantasy at worst. But, now it seems I have to clarify. I'm learning to be humble, and so must admit, I misjudged Steiner. And maybe, just maybe, I've also misjudged the occult, I was surprised to find in Steiner a highly philosophical mind and what seems to me to be genuine mystical intuition. His ideas resonate with notions from the Upanishads, Platonism, Hermeticism, and to a surprising degree, the depth psychology of Carl Jung. Where Steiner speaks of our thought life, Jung speaks of psyche where Steiner speaks of thought forms, Jung speaks of archetypes. And where Steiner speaks of our inner ruler, Jung speaks of the self. Beyond this, both Steiner and Jung agree that our higher self is in a constant state of transformation, and that this transformation is largely self determined. Both agree that we make ourselves and the world in a manner of speaking. Neither men go as far as to admit what this implies, that we are God. But the breadcrumbs are there. Jung provides an experimental avenue by which we can attain knowledge of our hidden self, our unconscious, or what Steiner might call our spirit self. Jung called it active imagination and described how you can learn to direct your consciousness within, in this inner place we can grow sensitive to impressions from our unconscious. We can learn to perceive them, to interact with them, to learn from them. In a sense, we can instigate revelation. Experimental as it is, he could not offer any structure or concrete steps to the exercise. It is a good start, but not much of a path for those looking to follow in his footsteps. Enter Rudolf Steiner. Steiner, on the other hand, takes a different approach. He appeals not to a burgeoning science as Jung did, but to an ancient occult tradition. Steiner claims to offer exactly the structure that Jung's approach fails to offer the path of the Gnostics and the mystics of old. He describes in eight edicts. I'm going to recap them for you. Number one, the path of veneration. Seek and develop the feeling of awe, the experience of being in the presence of something greater than yourself. Number two, pursue the sacred in everything. Learn to see the mystery and power in nature. Number three, avoid criticism and judgment. Learn to overcome preconceived ideas and limitations and expectations. Number four, identify with others. Learn to see yourself in others and in all things. Number five, search for the good in all things. Learn to see the sacred in all things as the vein that runs through the cosmos. Number six, meditate on your experiences from a detached, impersonal perspective. Number seven, never impose your will. And number eight, Wash, rinse, and repeat until you feel the higher being within awaken. The promise of this routine is the same promise Jesus offered in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. He who seeks shall continue seeking until he finds. And just what will he find? The mystic experience. The soul, as Jung put it. And this you can come to know What you truly are. You can experience the God within. And when you do, you will see the world in an entirely new way. You will be born again.
0: Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work